This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Bradford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we have a great show. I've been looking forward to today's show. Um, We have a lot going on in general, uh, but my guest today is going to be Dr. Philip Corvo. Dr. Corvo is the chairman of surgery at St. Mary's Hospital, and he's going to come in and talk a little bit about some of the new revelations in general surgery. General surgeries, abdominal surgery, um, so many different types of surgery under one title. But what's interesting is, and you know, I don't know if, if Janine Lee and Sal Haney thought about this, but there's really a lead-in from technology to medicine. And maybe that's why they put me after tab computer. But we're going to be talking a lot about that today. And we always do on this show, but specifically something being done at St. Mary's using 3D printers, right? Something we've heard about on their show in order to help prepare people, prepare surgeons for complicated surgery. So we're going to talk a little bit about 3D printers uh, from that standpoint. Yesterday, I had the pleasure of attending and being with a lot of young physicians at the Sports Medicine Fellowship Conference at the University of Connecticut. Uh, We had the uh, sports medicine family practice docs from St. Francis Hospital there, as well as the sports orthopedic surgeons um, who were there presenting cases. It's always great to get their take on what's going on and then have more senior, I don't want to say older, more senior physicians like myself being able to add our experience to what they've learned. So it was really a great session to be around. This day in medicine, June 24th, 1824, Dr. Pierre Paul Broca was born. Dr. Broca gave the first description of aphasia. Very interesting. Aphasia is something we note in neurology. You see it a lot of times when someone has had a stroke in what we call the dominant hemisphere, their left hemisphere. So what happens if you're right-handed, your left hemisphere is typically your dominant hemisphere. And Broca's aphasia is the inability to generate motor speech. So this is a situation where you understand what's being said. You understand how to follow commands but you cannot enunciate or pronounce words. So it's become known as Broca's aphasia or anterior aphasia. It goes by a lot of names, but it was uh, Dr. Broca who described that in 1824. One of the other things I wanted to talk about that we see more and more of is attention deficit hyperactive disorder, ADHD. So immediately when you hear the words ADHD, what comes in your mind? It's some child who's running all around and can't focus on things. What we have begun to notice is ADHD in older adults. It's believed that 2.8% of all individuals over the age of 65 have full-blown ADHD. 
and probably suffered with it throughout their lives. Uh, they were either the slow learner or the different learner in a class. And it's easily missed, especially in an older adult, because those same symptoms could be easily interpreted in an older person for an age-related cognitive disorder, kind of an early dementia or something like that. And there's very little awareness of this problem. So it's something physicians have become a little bit more focused on is when faced with someone who's having a cognitive disorder, might they have had ADHD for a very long time? And there's a lot of research going on in this field. Another thing that came up this week I was made aware of is a video. It's a YouTube video by Michael Moore. Now, Michael Moore is fairly controversial guy. I don't necessarily like everything he says or what he produces, but uh, this particular video was very instructive. It was called Why Finland Has the Best Education. Now, you might be saying, what's education got to do with medicine? It has everything to do with medicine because the only way we're going to keep healthcare costs down in this country is by educating people on how to stay in better health how to avoid dangerous situations and dangerous practices. And you'll find that as people become more educated, you have less of that. You have less of these dangerous behaviors. So why Finland has the best education? What was interesting about it was in the 1960s, the United States and Finland, when you looked at the world educational systems, we were at the bottom. We were at the bottom. But Finland changed what they did and suddenly soared to the top and have the best educational system in the world. Um, what was interesting about it is their children spend less time in school. They go to school for 20 hours a week for class time, and they have shorter days. So with shorter days and a shorter calendar, they have soared to the top. They don't have standardized tests. They don't use multiple choice tests. They actually find out what a student knows about the subject. And they stress using the brain for critical learning. Now, that learning doesn't always happen in the classroom. They never have homework. No homework. And in addition to that, they really stress education in arts, poetry, music, things that we have eliminated from our curricula here. What's most interesting is that the Finnish people credit the United States for their gains because their system, these are, these were the fundamentals of education in the United States, and yet we lost sight of them. So with that, it's very interesting, and I, I really ask everybody, it's worth spending about five or ten minutes looking at this YouTube video, and it's called Why Finland Has the Best Education, and really it's an idea of how to start stressing young people using their brains. More extracurricular activity, more free time, things such as that, that really can help from that standpoint. Uh, one of the other topics that's uh, come up that I wanted to talk a little bit about is, as you know, my area has been in concussion. And some of the things we talked about at the conference yesterday. And one of them was a recent study uh, that was published looking at concussed college athletes. And I think it was a JAMA publication. But it really looked at, in college athletes, since we're dealing with much more educated athletes, 
we're finding that there's increased stress in that situation and find a much higher incidence of migraine headache. So with that, we also find that with better education, we have better reporting of of concussion and able to intercede quicker for those athletes to get them to recover quicker. So it's very interesting overall to look at that um, and a study such as that where we looked at really college athletes and how they report concussion and the symptoms they report. Next up, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with Dr. Philip Corvo. Dr. Corvo is the chairman of surgery at St. Mary's Hospital. The call-in numbers here are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. It's 966-WTIC. You can also reach me live on the air at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. With that background music, I can make you all aware that the Barrett-Jackson Auto Show is going on at the Mohegan Sun. You should get over to the Mohegan Sun. This is a phenomenal thing. It's the only time they do this in the Northeast. It's a huge show and auction. So the Barrett-Jackson Auto Show and auction ongoing at the Mohegan Sun, if you can, get over there. So today we have as my guest, Dr. Philip Corvo. Dr. Corvo is the chairman of surgery at St. Mary's Hospital in Waterbury. And it is a level two trauma center. Uh, he uh, comes to us from Stanford Hospital, uh, where he was originally. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank Phil- you very much. Let's talk a little bit. How did you become a surgeon? Why don't we just start with there? What What interested you? What was your education like? Uh, well, if you ask my parents, that the, the, there was something that happened when I was younger that just sort of like started a spark in me. Uh, my parents were very, very good about encouraging anything I showed interest in. And my father would bring home things to sort of take apart and put back together. And I got very good at it. Um, and then for whatever reason, he brought home a dissecting kit and a squid from a local fish market. And I was able to take <laughs> it apart and I couldn't put it back together again. And somehow that just made me so mad and focused that I figured out at some point I needed to, to be able to do that. Um, and that's that's the story that they tell their friends, so that's the story that I tell people. That's among the most interesting stories uh, that got someone to go into medicine that I've heard. Um, let's talk a little bit about your education. So uh, undergrad, where'd you go? Undergrad was uh, Brooklyn College. I was in a, an accelerated combined bachelor master program in something called psychobiology. Uh, it's basically... Uh, the relationship between how people think and act and that the physical attributes that may may add to that. So your typical uh, bully is usually somebody who's physically intimidating. Uh, not that that's a good thing, but those those two traits tend to go with each other. Wow. Wow. And then uh, medical school? Uh, medical school is University of Connecticut. That's how I ended up in Connecticut. Um, absolutely loved uh, the state. Really missed my family and my friends in New York. And when I was looking for my residency program, um, I looked closer towards New York and ended up doing my residency at uh, Stanford Hospital. After that, came back to Hartford to do a, a fellowship, which is specialty training in trauma and critical care at Hartford Hospital, and then was asked to go back to Stanford Hospital to help run the residency program and be in practice. Um, I was there for about 15 years, and then three years ago came to St. Mary's to be the chairman and the head of the surgical critical care unit. 
Let's talk a little bit about general surgery. Um, what does general surgery encompass altogether? My, my senior partner used to call it, uh, it was the, the care of the skin and its contents. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, there were no super specialty surgeons. You were either a, a medical doctor or a surgeon. And the surgeons were the people who, who fixed bones and, and cut things out, that sort of stuff. Uh, and over time, as our uh, knowledge of the human body became greater and greater, it, it got to the point where one person couldn't be a, a master over all of it. So we sort of started to separate out into specialties. And the people that did not separate themselves out uh, and, and sort of pigeonhole themselves into a specialty remained the generalist surgeon. And that term has uh, uh, persisted until today. Um, basically, 90% of what we do is uh, in the abdomen so any sort of abdominal trauma we take care of. Uh, when you hear about people having the need for uh, gallbladder surgery, stomach surgery, colon surgery, um, and then various lumps and bumps uh, anywhere in your body. Uh, but general surgeons do, uh, I mean, there's a lot of overlap, especially when it comes to trauma. Yes. Uh, because even within general surgery, you have people who do more uh, GI surgery uh, as opposed to uh, some who do vascular work. Correct. Uh, but uh, in the case, can you talk a little bit about trauma surgery and how that's developed? Because I have to tell you, that's a hot area these days. Uh, a lot of uh, young people going into trauma surgery and trauma ICU management. Yes, uh, you're absolutely correct. Um, it, it's gotten to the point where trauma surgery uh, itself has turned into its own specialty. Um, a, a good percentage of the larger trauma centers in the hospital have uh, teams of surgeons who started out as general surgeons and then did the specialty training um, and simply dedicate themselves to the care of trauma patients. Uh, that's important because without that specialty training, you have somebody who's trying to run their own practice. Two o'clock in the afternoon, someone ends up getting hit by a car or shot, um, and that person needs to leave their office, leave their patients that are in their waiting room to go take care of somebody uh, when I was in practice, uh, on more than one occasion, I would turn around to my staff and say, sorry, I'm out of here. Apologize to everybody that's in the waiting room and just figure out how to squeeze them back in. Um, and that's just not a good situation for anybody. So now that we have um, specialty services and teams, they're, they're in the intensive care unit taking care of the people that were sick a few days ago and unfortunately waiting for the next trauma patient to show up so that they can dedicate and focus completely on that next patient or patients. When do we start using a scope? I mean, now, for example, I, I, you don't take out, most people do gallbladder, you know, endoscopic gallbladder mm -hmm. surgery and, and a lot more abdominal surgery with a scope. Yes. How did that all develop? Yes. Um, before you were talking about uh, technology and this, this I think is just a, an evolutionary part of the field. Um, your question, you know, when do we use a scope? The, the easy answer is anytime you can. Uh, the technology has gotten so good that we can actually see better under certain circumstances. We can see better now with these scopes. Um, think of it as a, a camera at the end of a very long wand. We can see better uh, now under some circumstances than we can even with old-fashioned open surgery. And you can imagine that uh, compared to the typical you know grandparent who has a six-inch long incision for their gallbladder surgery. Um, we can do it now, depending upon the circumstances, through three one-quarter inch incisions or under the right circumstances. I can take out a gallbladder completely through somebody's belly button 
when everything's healed, there there's essentially no scar at all because whatever scar is hidden in the folds of the, the belly button. Uh, it's not just a cosmetic thing. The, the incisions are smaller, so the pain is less. Automatically means people recover quicker, uh, less complications afterwards. You can imagine it hurts a lot to breathe with a big incision, sure. smaller incisions, breathe better, less pneumonia, uh, less pain afterwards, which means less narcotic. Uh, people get back to school and work sooner, uh, less possible infection rates. Uh, every possible advantage that you could think of happens when you use scopes. Um, this is fascinating. We're talking with Dr. Philip Corvo from St. Mary's Hospital. He's the chief of surgery there. And I really want to talk a little bit more about this technology bridging over to medicine. We're going to talk about the use of 3D printers in surgery when we get back after this break. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we're chatting with Dr. Philip Corvo, who is the chairman of surgery at St. Mary's Hospital. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. That's 966-WTIC. Philip, before we were leave, before we took the break, we were chatting a little bit about the technology kind of bridge to medicine. And Something interesting, and it was an article in Hartford Magazine about using 3D printers and 3D modeling for removal of a tumor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think this is part of the next revolution in medicine. Um, As we've gotten more comfortable with doing more and more complicated procedures on people, you can imagine that the imaging of the patient and the anatomy uh, gets more and more important. And one of the interesting problems that we have is no matter how good uh, a CAT scan is or an ultrasound or an MRI, those are two-dimensional representations of a person and their problem, which is always three-dimensional. And it it sounds kind of odd, but when you lose that third dimension, you lose an incredible amount of information. Um, And I don't mean three-dimensional like the sort of goofy 3D movies that you see where you have to wear, you know, glasses and stuff. Um, but you're losing your depth of perception. So picture trying to uh, pick up a piece of rice off of a counter with one eye closed, both of your arms in casts so that the only thing you can do is is open and close your fingers. And then you have uh, basically pencils or, or even chopsticks uh, strapped to your fingers. And now you're trying to pick up that piece of rice uh, through a donut hole. And as crazy as that sounds, that's about as good as regular laparoscopic surgery gets because of that that lack of that third dimension. Um, and now get rid of all of that and open up your eyes and just use your fingers to pick up that, that grain of rice. Uh, so after talking to our uh, engineering department, um, the, the two of us sort of you know came from this issue from two different directions. Um, and my engineering director basically said, hey, listen, we have this three-dimensional printer that the hospital uses. Uh, to sometimes print out pieces of equipment that have just broken and the manufacturers just won't make that one knob anymore. Uh, You can pick up the pieces of the knob, glue them together, put it through a a little scanner, and then print out a piece of plastic that is a perfect replication for that knob. Um, And with a little bit of uh, jumping ahead and the right kind of uh, hand-shaking software, we've been able to take CAT scans, MRIs, 
translate the information into uh, the, the files that a three-dimensional printer would use. And just like a regular printer prints out different colors and layers of ink on a sheet of paper, a three-dimensional printer can do that by printing out different colors and different layers of plastic on top of each other. And when you're done, you come out with a three-dimensional representation of a person's anatomy and their tumor. And uh, we've used it uh, twice now at uh, at St. Mary's, and we're we're getting ready to do a couple of other more complicated patients with it. So, what type specifically? What type is it only used for cancer surgery? Is it because you want to see how the tumor encroaches uh, on other structures, uh, either in the abdomen or somewhere else? In other words, I understand how it helps you grab grasp the dimension. Is it fairly accurate in how invasive that tumor may be to the or- surrounding organs? Yes. When it's done properly and to scale, it is incredibly accurate. Uh, the first patient that we used this on was a woman who had a, a, a very rare and unusual cancer. Uh, and the thing that made it unusual was that it wasn't a cancer inside of an organ, which is what usually happens. It was a cancer that was sort of relatively free-floating in the, the fat of her abdomen uh, that all of us have. Um, and it, it sort of pushes some organs out of the way, but then other organs, it doesn't just push up against them. It actually starts to grow through them. Um, this modeling was so accurate that when we, we had it in our hands and we were spinning it around, one of my colleagues had sort of commented that, oh, you guys missed this particular vein coming out of the kidney. You didn't print it properly. Well, on the CAT scan, that's sort of what it looked like. Um, but when we ended up operating on the patient, the reason that it looked like that vessel was missing is because true to life of the three-dimensional model, that exact vessel happened to have been encroached upon and engulfed by the tumor. Wow. Something that would have been a, a surprise had we not had this, this sure. model before. Um, so far, we've only used it for complicated tumors like that. But one of our plastic surgeons has a patient that we're working up right now, um, a gentleman who lost an ear in an accident. Um, he's still able to hear, but the shape of our ear helps us really magnify sounds. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is we are taking very high uh, resolution CAT scans of his head and his other ear. We're going to use the software to create a mirror image of that ear. And then we are going to print out the the mold of the ear out of his cartilage and then cover it with a skin graft to give him an ear back. That's our next, that's our next plan. Wow. Wow. If that's not the brave new world, uh, nothing is. I mean, that's that's tremendous. It's fantastic. Yes. Philip, we're going to switch gears a little bit because I like to go now away from technology and go to simple things. One of the things I love uh, and we discuss on this show a lot are simple ways of saving lives and improving health. And one of them in, in our discussion before the show was a program called Stop the Bleed. The use of a tourniquet. Nothing gets more basic than the use of a tourniquet. It goes back to ancient times. And we're starting to see a resurgence of that. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of stopping bleeding in an accident situation? Yes, absolutely. And and thank you for bringing this up. Um, You know, unfortunately, the patterns of trauma that uh, private citizens and pedestrians are experiencing now has changed um, you know, 20 years ago, having multiple people shot at the same time or having a homemade bomb go off was just unthinkable. Um, and now, unfortunately, it's part of our, our daily lives. The The problem with trauma is that the vast majority of people bleed to death. 
and a good portion of those people bleed to death b- before the official help, before the ambulance and 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 uh, fire department um, can show up. So if you can literally stop the bleed by literally just sort of closing the hole temporarily, um, we, we have a lot of people that can now become survivors. So this Stop the Bleed campaign, which was actually started in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, the, the group that put it together is called the Hartford Consensus, has this plan to create a nationwide training program similar to what we do with CPR. Uh, CPR is taught in high schools now, and it, and it saves countless lives. So if we can teach people to, to take care of very simple but life-threatening bleeding right at the scene of the accident by applying direct pressure and teaching them how to apply uh, a tourniquet, uh, hopefully some of the poor victims of these mass casualty accidents um, can be saved. Well, unfortunately, it's a sign of the times now that we're uh, often thrown into these situations. And and a lot has been learned, I guess, in the battlefield uh, yes. when it comes to trauma. Because yes. people used to say, never put a tourniquet on uh, because they'll lose the limb. Uh, and yet we have found now that uh, tourniquets and, – and by the way, these tourniquets are not anything special. You can use almost anything, but they are very cheap to purchase on Amazon. So if you learn how to use it, having one available, honestly, I keep one in my glove compartment. Um, as a physician, the last thing I want to be is at a scene where I don't have a tool that I need. Uh, and uh, I think they go for like 10 bucks. I mean, they're yes. not, not yep. expensive at all. Um, but uh, again, can you tell people again how to use a tourniquet in the sense of and reassure people they're not doing damage to the, to the victim? Yes, um, so, so one thing I would suggest before reaching for a tourniquet, if simply applying direct pressure with your hand, even if you have to take off, uh, you know, your shirt because you're worried about touching blood, uh, applying direct pressure is still the absolute best way to do it. Um, when you can't do that and the bleeding is on an extremity, uh, by all means, follow the directions that come with the the tourniquet. If there's a first responder there and they give you suggestions, follow what they're telling you. Um, but basically, the the point of this is. Yes, in the past, we were worried about losing the limb, um, but our rehabilitation abilities and our abilities to create prosthetic limbs now have gotten so good that it is much better to possibly lose the limb than to actually let somebody bleed to death for fear of not doing anything. Uh, you basically, most of these tourniquets are uh, just basically very large Velcro straps with an extra little uh, twist on it um, and just put it above the point of bleeding and tighten it up until the bleeding stops and write the time on the tourniquet. That part's very important. That's right. Write the time that you applied it on the tourniquet so that we know how long it's been on for. That's great. We're chatting about general surgery today with Dr. Philip Corvo. We're going to come back and chat a little bit more about something we've chatted on the show about before in terms of non-narcotic pain control after surgery. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds for our final segment with Dr. Philip Corvo. Dr. Corvo is the chairman of surgery at St. Mary's Hospital. Um, For those of you who want his contact information, the phone number to get in touch with Dr. Corvo is 203-709-5900. As many of you know now, uh, St. Mary's Hospital is part of Trinity Healthcare. Uh, which is the uh, St. Francis uh, group with uh, St. Mary's and Mercy Hospital, as well as uh, the Mount Sinai uh, 
Rehabilitation Center. Philip, before the break, we talked a little bit about technology, non-technology, but, you know, increasingly we're hearing about uh, opiate abuse. Opiate abuse is you can't open, you can't pick up a newspaper without hearing about it. And more and more, everybody is blaming the physician. Um, You know, well, the doctor gave me these pills. The doctor did this. After my operation, that. So uh, I, you know, it's really, it's ironic because we were always taught, well, this is the fifth vital sign. You cannot have patients in pain. You have to do whatever you can as a physician to keep them out of pain. And now we're being blamed for that. So once again, we respond. And now we have non-narcotic pain control. But I was interested because uh, we chatted a little bit about non-narcotic pain control after abdominal surgery. Not something you think about an awful lot because you think about, man, it hurts having abdominal surgery. How have you accomplished that? Uh, I think the easiest way to describe it is that we use a cocktail of multiple non-narcotic medications and give you four or five of them instead of just giving you morphine. Um, you can imagine that the drug companies have been have been trying to keep up with, with their version of technology over time. And we have the ability to give people an intravenous version of Tylenol, believe it or not. Um, because it goes intravenously, your liver doesn't try to uh, digest it like it would for a pill. So when that intravenous Tylenol gets in your bloodstream, it ends up being 10 times more potent than the Tylenol you're familiar with. It's almost as potent as four milligrams of morphine, which is kind of the high end of the average dose that people would get after an abdominal surgery. Uh, a couple of years ago, we also started using a, a drug called Expirel. And I want you to think of going to the dentist and getting the classic Novocaine shot. And now picture that lasting for three or four days. So between those two medications and some others, uh, there are actually some uh, antidepressants in the market that have very nice side effects that sort of deaden your sensation to pain. Um, and we give these as, like I said, as a, as a cocktail. Uh, it's probably a bad term now that I think about it if sure, we're talking but about opiates. That's okay. But a, but a, a mix of medications. Sure. Um, and after a large surgery, uh, we've been able to do complex abdominal surgeries, uh, removing part of a, a large intestine for a, a colon cancer, um, and have people take literally zero narcotic pain medicine afterwards. Uh, They use some ice packs. They get these other medications around the clock. Um, A really, really nice uh, advantage to this uh, is that if nobody ever gets a narcotic in the first place, it's impossible to become addicted to it afterwards. Um, And then there's a whole bunch of side effects that you can get from narcotic medications that we we tend to not talk about. Um, They slow down your intestines so that somebody who's had abdominal surgery needs to sit around in the hospital for five or six days, literally sure. just waiting to go to the bathroom. Now people go home in two days instead of five. Uh, the narcotic medicine can make you confused, so now you don't have to worry about getting up at two in the morning, getting confused because you're in unfamiliar surroundings, tripping on something, and then falling while you're in the hospital. Our our safety profile has improved, our pain uh, profile has improved, and uh, hopefully we've, we'll be able to demonstrate that the narcotic addiction has been positively impacted with this down the road. Has it helped you get people out of the hospital? I know you said sooner, but we keep hearing the trend towards more outpatient surgery, and not uh, so. In other words, if someone has outpatient surgery uh, laparoscopically, for example, uh, I think for a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, we would keep somebody in overnight usually. No. No, so we we've gotten so good with some of the smaller surgeries, like like a gallbladder yeah. surgery, yeah. Um, 
average person, if I start the surgery at 7.30 in the morning, you are home having lunch that same day. Really? Yes. It, it's gotten wow. it, it's gotten that good. Wow. Yes. I, I've not known that. So, okay. So if we take that example, um, this IV Tylenol or IV acetaminophen, as mm-hmm. you described, can they get that at home? In other words, with home care? Is is that what it is, or you just give it the one time in the hospital before they leave? So we, we give it uh, several times in the hospital, yeah. um, pretty much like every six hours. Um, but by the time people are ready to go home after a, a large surgery, two, three days later, sure, um, their their body's ability to deal with the pain has gotten to the point where now at home, they just use ice packs and regular Tylenol or Motrin or Advil or whatever, whatever they want at that point. Uh, I'm still amazed at the gallbladder. I mean, I still remember the gallbladder, sir. I still remember being a medical student holding those retractors and somebody being in the hospital for 10 days or more um, yes. after uh, gallbladder surgery. Yep. What other types of abdominal surgery have you used this in? You already said, um, you know, doing a colon resection. Mm-hmm. Um, how about vascular surgeries? Can you can you get by with non-narcotic medication? Uh, you, you definitely can. Any any kind of surgery that creates some sort of pain, uh, we can get by with the these this multimodal analgesia protocols. Um, some patients respond better than others. You're uh, you're asking about uh, converting things to day surgeries. Yeah. Uh, there are some hospitals that are very aggressive with this with their joint replacement surgeries, um, knee replacement, hip replacement. Those people usually stayed in the hospital for several days and then went to a, a rehab facility. Uh, we're getting to the point where those people can have their surgery and the next day, under some circumstances, the same day, um, go home and oh, actually yeah. have rehabilitation specialists come to the home and rehab them at home using these uh, pain control techniques. You know, we had that conversation with Dr. Michael Joyce from uh, CJRI um, and, and found that very interesting. So enlighten me a little bit about what other things are same-day surgery now. For example, hernia, is that same-day Oh, definitely. 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 What yes. what other things, uh, general surgical procedures are same day? Uh, probably the most common things are hernias, um, including multiple hernias. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people come in not with just a double hernia, but a triple hernia. Uh, the, t- the typical uh, overweight gentleman, two groin hernias and a belly button hernia. We can fix those and have you home wow. that same day. Um, gallbladder surgery, absolutely same day. Uh, intestinal is usually a little bit longer than that just because it's it's a bit more involved. Uh, bariatric surgery, uh, surgery for people that are that are overweight, uh, that used to be three or four days in the hospital. Same day. Same day. They're under the right circumstances. Those wow. people can go home the same day. Wow. This is fascinating. Listen, it's been great chatting with you. I'm sorry the conversation has to end. We've been chatting with Dr. Philip Corvo from St. Mary's Hospital. Thank you for your time, Philip. Oh, and thank pleasure. you for everything you do for patients. My pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Alko. Mikey is uh, on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, we will have a taped program since it is the holiday weekend. Um, Next up on WTIC is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor by going to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society.
Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.